0: Welcome to the Striking Thoughts podcast with me, Lee Sims. Okay, so just a few bits of news to start with. On Sunday the 21st of June, I'll be teaching an online workshop in relation to the self-defense laws in England and Wales. The cost for the workshop is £10 per person and the event will last for two hours and will include an interactive presentation on the rules of self-defense as well as a question and answer session at the end. The event will be limited to around 30 participants, and places have already been filling up rather quickly. Please contact me at my email address, which is lee at leesims.com, and if you do as soon as possible so you don't miss out on your space. The month of May should have brought us a joint seminar between me and Don Kame of Kisaki Kai Karate. Due to the current restrictions, that's not been possible, but I do intend on collaborating with Don on a future podcast so you will have at least some form of collaboration between the two of us. I also have a video chat with Chris Hansen of Karate Unity recorded, in which we discuss a range of topics based on some of Chris's favorite martial art YouTube videos. Once that's all edited, I'll be sharing that with all you as well. So today we have the first part of my conversation with John Titchen. If you don't know John... He's both a teacher and writer in the fields of karate and self-protection. His latest book is entitled Karate and Self-Defense, and he's been active over, over the years on the seminar circuit, both here in the UK and across the world. I came across John's work on a few different occasions over the past years. Initially, it was through his first set of books, the and Flow System, and then there's now also a Pinan and Flow System series as well. And in this part of our conversation, we discuss John's background, as well as both the he and I'm PIN and Flow System series of books. I did speak to John for over an hour, so there are going to be other parts to this conversation, which will be released shortly. But for now, I give you part one of my conversation with John Titchen. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lee. If you just want to give people a bit of a background on yourself, how you got to karate and where you are now.
1: I started karate in 1991 in my late teens. I essentially went into karate because I'd been having some trouble with anger management issues. This was something that was suggested for me. It just happened that a club started up at an opportune time at my school and it was a Shotokan club. So that is what I, I naturally went into. And in the, uh, in the holidays, I sort of managed to, to find something else to do, another local Shotokan club to, to go and train with for a while. So right from the start, I was training with more than one Shotokan group. And then off to university, yet another Shotokan group, but continuing to travel and, and grade with my, my original lot. And that has been essentially the main foundation for my training over the years, I got interested in cross-training very, very early on. The first thing I actually cross-trained in was Steel Wild Mantis, a chap named Tony Lung, who at the time wrote a Richard Kung Fu column, thinking back in time, to uh, for Combat Magazine. From my perspective, this was quite a groundbreaking event for me. From the perspective of the instructor, yes, they had someone come in for two days, two seminar days. From my perspective, it gave me a whole new insight into other things, other ways of moving that inspired me to think more out of the box and and change the way I train.
0: How long were you doing the charter camp for before you started to cross-train? One year, One tops. Year.
1: I was 7th Q when I started to cross-train.
0: So that, relatively speaking, that seems quite a young position to start cross-training in. Most people who I've met have cross-trained once they reached some kind of like black belt level. But it looks like from the start you've had a, a good mixture of Shotokan to begin with. Um, and then quite early on again, um, a mixture with a different style, a completely different system. And the different Shotokan clubs, were, were they all teaching roughly the same thing? Were there variations there? Anything which influenced you as you went forward?
1: There were some considerable variations. The, the first two that I trained with were both what I would call Kanazawa room. So my group was headed up by the late Roger Hall. That was heavily influenced by Kanazawa's way of moving, and Roger also did Tai Chi like Kanazawa. He could be incredibly, incredibly fast and sharp, but a lot of the time when he was demonstrating, he was just slow, and seamlessly transitioning between movements, and that had a big influence on me. The first place I cross-trained with was, I think it was a Jinsei Kai group, and they were Paul Perry, and they were also kanazawa rue based. But then the next person I, I went and trained off with at university was Ken Hassel who was at the time one of Steve Cattle's students. I also only met Steve once. But Ken's way of doing things was very, very different. And it it posed quite a challenge for me at the time. And I actually took a year out from training with the university clubs just to train on my own. Because at the time, the, the clash between Ken's way of doing things and Roger's way of doing things was such that I really felt I needed to focus on Roger's way of doing things. And so I I did a year where I was essentially just training two hours every weekday morning by myself. And then at the weekends, I was taking a train, um, getting home and then driving to Bishop for to train with Roger uh, and doing that sort of journey. But I, I do feel that I, I benefited from seeing different things. It was just too much for me to take in at the time. I also briefly went across to Sean Warcliffe and looked at his wing Chun. And it's funny to me now because the way he moves and the way he was doing things at the time is quite similar to the way I do a lot of my training now. But for me as a brown belt at the time, it was just too different. It was too different to integrate.
0: So there you mentioned some Kung Fu at the start when you're 7th queue and you just um, floated the idea across of thinking about doing a bit of Wing Chun. So there seems to be an interest. Is there an interest in the Chinese arts there for you? Was there something you would have done when you, if you had the chance? Or I think it was
1: more the fact that at the time I was very, very into my martial arts, and I was reading Combat Magazine, um, and later on Terry O'Neill's Fighting Arts International, and uh, Sean Rawcliffe and Tony Long were both regular columnists at the time. I think in Combat Magazine. And so I just took the opportunity to go to a seminar with Tony Lung. And that just influenced me in my personal training more than anything else. You know, it was only a one-off event, but it had a big impact on me and how I thought about moving and how I trained. And I think like a lot of teenage students that are into martial arts, I also took a lot of inspiration from what I was watching, what I was seeing in films and so forth. So I had my kick bag in the garage, and I think at the time I was, I was doing a, certainly a lot of kicking on that kick bag, influenced by uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and I was also very influenced, I think at the time, by the Highlander TV series, and the, the sort of mix of different things that were going on there. But I was never really a, a big martial arts movie person, more of an action movie person. And it just influenced my personal training. I didn't really go into heavy cross training again until I got my first down.
0: Okay, so yeah, so so you got your first down, which I assume was in Shotokan Karate, if that's correct. Yeah. And now you teach. So now you teach um, two. You got two curriculums you work from. You've got a Karate curriculum and a, a system you call Dart. Um, yes. if, if you want to just explain what both of them are. Why, why you've got two and how you essentially came from that downgrade in Shotokan, the uh, influences you've had, and then into what you teach now.
1: Well, one of the things I immediately identified from personal experiences was that my karate, as I was training in it, was lacking in grappling. And that actually led me to Aikido, all things. And I did a good eight years uh, regular cross training in Aikido, you know, doing the classes twice a week and so forth. Going off to summer camps, training in a in a influenced system, um, training locally with the late John Tidder and Alan Prescott, and training on week long courses in the summer with the late Pierre Chassang, uh, former bodyguard to Charles de Gaulle and French resistance fighter. And uh, Mike Neri, who is still a very senior Aikidika based out of Bristol. And that had an influence on how I moved and also how I interpreted a lot of karate techniques. But my focus had been for quite a long time, it has been self-protection. So I was always looking at what I was doing with relation to self-protection. And because karate was my foundation, utilising my karate for that, And over time, my syllabus changed to the extent that I couldn't really call it Shotokan anymore. And it just went by the name Practical Karate. And I felt that that it was a good descriptor, but I wanted something a bit more specific. And in 2006, I started using the term Dart to describe what I did. And it wasn't until about 2014 that I actually started teaching Shotokan again. And that was really because I was putting out media for Shotokan people. I was uh, you know, I had books out for Shotokan people, and yet as a person I was not actually offering Shotokan to anyone on a regular basis outside of seminars. So I decided to set up a sort of separate Shotokan time slot and immediately attracted some very talented uh, people to come and train with me. Not so many Q grades, but um, quite a few very good uh, downgrades from different backgrounds. And over time, just for convenience, that Shotokan class is kind of merged into the Dart class. So I am teaching them side by side and I have people coming for the Shotokan, I have people coming for the Dart And often in a session, they will completely mix because what's the use of any system if you can't suddenly pair up someone from a different system?
0: Really good point there. And something which I want to touch upon or or ask you to cover on here is you said that you're no longer teaching Shotokan, which is why you changed the name of your system to to Dart. If you can just explain what, what, what Dart means... And then the differences between the DART system and your standard Shotokan, so we can get an idea of, of what you practice. Well, one of the immediate
1: reasons for for the name shift uh, and for the change was that I went through a long period of time where I was not teaching kata at all, and that may sound strange to some people because obviously by that time I, I had. book out on the Hian Kata. I was teaching seminars uh, in the UK and the USA on Kata and Kata application. But from my perspective, I'm first and foremost a self-protection person. And I had taken what I felt was useful from the Kata in terms of creative drills based on movements. And over time, I kept refining and ditching things and tweaking things and in a lot of cases, the, the drills morphed so that they didn't resemble the kata they'd originally come from. Ironically, they resembled other kata, but that's a whole separate story. So I had a group of people who were not training in gi, who were training in T-shirts and track suits, who were not doing kata, but from my perspective, were still doing karate, And I felt just really for for marketing purposes as much as anything else, I needed a name to describe what I was doing. And I didn't want to use an Oriental name because I'm not Japanese, I'm not Chinese. I just didn't feel it was appropriate. But I wanted something that would sum up what we were doing. And I opted for the term DART because on its own, It represents a a, a word that represents a swift movement, um, or as I like to call it, a step in the right direction. Um, It also represents a weapon, a projectile, something that moves fast. But it breaks down for me into defence, attack, and resolution tactics to sum up what we were looking at as a system. So the whole idea of confrontation and conflict management self-protection and then within that self-defense
0: so it sounds like you're you're really putting a an emphasis and a focus and a foundation based upon the self-protection side of your training rather than i think traditionally in in the traditional martial arts anyway the idea of the history the culture you know like you said the geese the old kata they were kind of the forefront. I think what you're saying with the dart is you kind of changed the priority of your training to be more self-protection based.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, that was was and remains the, the core focus of dart. And over time, that has changed. I mean, we don't stand still. So about six years ago, I decided... That we would go back to karate suits. And there were a number of reasons for that. We'd switched to track suits because we were using body armor so much. But I'd started running scenario training where we were exclusively using body armor. The rationale for not wearing a gi wasn't quite so much there. But I'd noticed that we were actually being less rough with each other in regular training because we were afraid of tearing the t-shirts. And that was a reason to go back to gi. And then finally, just basic uh, identification of students and training convenience and also retaining students. The, the the belt system and the gi system has its benefits. The the gi itself, it can be used to replicate a T-shirt. You tuck it into a belt, you pull it, it opens the way a T-shirt scene opens. You have it hanging loose outside the belt and turn the collar, it behaves like a school blazer or an open jacket. If you've got ties, you tie it at the sides and you put it inside the belt. When you pull it, it behaves like a zipped-up jacket. There was a lot of good training rationale for using a gi. And I actually felt we'd become a bit softer for not using it. So we went back to gi. And before that, we'd actually gone back to... Utilising Kata.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I was going to come uh, on to that with you, because w- one of the reasons I first came across your work was through the um, the Hian, or I think the are now called the Pin and Flow System book series you had.
1: Well, there are two distinct things. The Hian Flow System was actually written in 2004, and it was me putting together existing drills or existing Applications for techniques that I was using uh, and orientating really towards something else into a holistic system, and that was written in two thousand and four. But because my first transplant failed in two thousand and four, and then because of the general difficulties in publishing a book, in doing photo shoots, and not being happy with your photo shoots, and redoing your photo shoots. The book was written in 2004. The photos for the original draft of the book was done in uh, they were done in 2006, and then the book itself was published in 2007. And when it by the time it was published, it didn't even really reflect what I was doing anymore because what I was doing was considerably different by the time it was published. We weren't in, in my regular classes. We weren't even doing the hian kata. And then the, the Penan flow system was me making a decision to take what I was currently doing and try and present it in a usable format for those people who have a karate background that incorporates the Hian or Penan kata. And I'd already used the term Hian flow system. So the Penan flow system was essentially a reflection of what I'd been doing over the last decade or more in my own training incorporating different approaches incorporating different ideas but linking them back to movements within the hiankata kata
0: and then presenting that is there a reason why you picked the the Hian or pinang katas to do this with uh, is this something which that the katas which you studied in depth yourself a lot or was it just coincidence that the movements you were doing reflected emotions in the Pinan Kata?
1: I think there's an element of both. I can remember when I went for for my first cue, my instructor, Roger, saying to me, yeah, this is really, really good. I like your Kankadai, I like your Basai Dai, I like your Gion, I like your Jite, I like your mp. I like your Hangetsu, but your heian Kata are weak. You need to go back and work on them because there's often a tendency in students that you perform a kata at the standard at which you learned it.
0: Yeah, I, I get that.
1: And so I did spend, I spent quite a lot of time refining my hian kata, for want of a better word. But the hian kata themselves, I see them as a distillation of other kata. You know, they are formed from movements that you find in other kata. Whichever version of their history you buy into, you see combinations from them in later kata. And there's a lot of good material in there. There's a lot of great footwork in there, turning there's a lot of very, very good, solid core karate technique in there. And then in terms of appeal to other people, in terms of helping other people beyond my own students, I felt that the Heian and Pianan Kata were a very, very broad platform for karateka. Obviously, not so much so for Gojo-Ru karateka, perhaps, but they ticked a lot of boxes, whereas... Other kata, you might find them distributed among a lot of styles, but people don't tend to learn them until later on.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that that's the other thing with them. I find that, that you could pick you know, kata like Basai or Kankudai, Kushanku, which are quite prevalent in other systems, but you usually you're training for a couple of years before you get access to those kata, whereas the, the pinans you start with from day one, so not only are they universal in terms of the majority, I think, of karate could practice them, or styles practice them but the actual students as well you don't need to be training in three four years before you you start to practice these as well so the, the, the Indeed.
1: If, if you as an instructor want to introduce new material or new ways of moving to students beginners are actually the best place to start so if you design something that is there that can be used by downgrades that could also be used by white belts right from the start then I think you're helping other people as much as you can to get into new material or new ways of moving and training.
0: And, and both sets of books, they're not just books where you have the solo representation of the catters and you go through the movements of the kata. They also include you know, the practical or effective applications of those movements as well. And
1: I would say in all honesty that the HeAN flow system, which is now out of print, um, although copies of it are available to buy for astronomical prices on Amazon, and I don't get a penny of, of that money uh, because they're secondhand. Um, the the PNAM flow system is more practically orientated than the Hean flow system. It wasn't that the heAN flow system wasn't intended to be practically orientated. It was designed to try and take people's training in a more practical fashion. It's just that as a karateka, as a martial artist, as an instructor, I have changed over those 10 years. And the penile flow system kind of reflects those trainings. But even it itself is, to a certain extent, it's constrained by me trying to show you stuff within kata movements that you recognize. But it's also constrained by the fact that it's a book. And books do limit you. You have frozen pictures rather than sequences of movements. I can only give you indications of possible crossovers and combinations. You know, you've got to go and take it and work with it. A bit like Funakoshi said with his throws, he said, I've shown you an example, but every single thing can be done in lots and lots of different ways. You've got to go away
0: and train this. I completely agree. And where I was trying to leave with that was you didn't call these books. You know the Pinan application series or the Pinan bunkai series. You call them, you know, He-An flow system and the Pinan flow system. So I'm just wondering what a flow system is if, if somebody's not read your books yet.
1: I deliberately use the word flow system rather than flow drills. To me, the the flow drills that I've I've witnessed or encountered tend to be quite static and fixed and Uh, A bit of a loop. The whole point of the flow system, both flow systems, was that you were training people to flow seamlessly from one movement to the next, whether it be striking or grappling. And there's often a, a disconnect in training, which can affect the people who need support the most, which is that they do a static drill, they get good at a static drill, and then when they finally get introduced to what we might call free sparring, suddenly it's all unpredictable and they don't know what to do or how to string things together necessarily Yes. beyond very limited combinations. And the whole point about the flow system was that stuff was designed to work together a bit like Meccano um, and fit and chop and change. Um, and you could use the Lego analogy as well, you know, build stuff, build different models So it was all about getting people to move seamlessly between applications and having applications that work together in case of failure, rather than just teaching set things. There's nothing I do that actually goes beyond more than one combo that is fixed. And when I'm seen in books demonstrating a string of things, every single one of those things can be broken up and flitted across into something else as people who train
0: with me will quickly find. Okay, so so if I've got this right, then what you're saying is your difference between standard flow drills, which which you see or come across, um, if, if you went on online and typed in flow drill, you'd either get two kinds of flow drills I see. One is a back and forth motion where the attacker and defender are switching places halfway through. So there'll be some kind of attack and the defender will defend and then fire the same attack back and then now the old attacker is now the defender, and they defend, and he flicks back and forth like that. Or yes. you, you've got one attacker and one defender, and the the attacker maybe does something to start with, or maybe it's a preemptive drill, but the defender then does move A followed by move B, followed by move C, followed by move D, E, F, G, and so on. And then the next time they do the drill, it's in the same order, in the same way, yeah. A, B, C, D, E, F. Whereas yes. the, a flow system... It's something where maybe you know we start with C and then because of the response or because of the way we're drilling things today, we go from C to A to F to U to D and then next time we do the drill, it's completely different again. Yes.
1: You are choosing the order in which the notes are played, essentially, uh, or the, the order of the letters and making your own uh, story. The, the thing about my drills is yes, there, there are opportunities, and you can deliberately leave opportunities if you so wish for the other person to to switch roles, but they're not necessarily fixed and they're not always immediately predictable. Now They become predictable through training because if you train um, to a good degree, you should recognize the strengths and weaknesses inherent in all your tactics so you know when something Could go wrong and how it's like to go wrong, and therefore you're ready for it. You're prepared, you know, you have to prepare for failure. Uh, But it is about making the unpredictable predictable, but never completely fixed. It's only ever fixed as a training stage. So I might introduce someone initially to a haymaker punch, but people are going to get pretty bored if they're just doing a haymaker punch defense. So I'll say, right. Just randomly, sometimes let the other person carry on with their counter, but other times, before they get a chance, if you can, bear hug them, if you can, boxers hug them, if you can, headlock them. And I'll introduce to them, you know, statically a defense, one of those elements, and then they start stringing it together. And it might be fixed initially, and I say, punch, headlock, punch, boxers hug, punch, clinch, punch, tackle. And then we move to punch but you choose which one of these you do next to make it random for the person to improve their adaptability their reaction time and so forth in stringing together what were two static drills into dynamic training becomes a live training when you put far fewer limits on it and you
0: just say yeah start the punch see where you go and you just let people play so, so we're using the the defensive motions. The, the, what the defenders doing in these drills is the applications to the kata usually. But the attacks, and you you just alluded to a few there, so we have like, boxer hugs, haymakers. They're not what what you used to see really prevalent in karate books, which would be kata applications against other karate attacks. So your your lunge punch, your front kick. You're you're taking a different approach on the attacks, which get implemented into your drills. So I'm just wondering where they come from and how you you codify them and work with them.
1: Well, people are certainly entitled to do applications against standard karate techniques. And dare I say it, the first person demonstrating that or the first people demonstrating that were probably Motobu and Funakoshi. And they were demonstrating it in their early books for... The audience they perceived would be reading. They were trying to find a, a safe, competitive way of practicing karate, and that's why they also experimented with body armor uh, for a time in the 30s. We know that Funakoshi was interested in it. We know that uh, Mabuni was interested in it. But as Aitosu wrote, you know, karate was designed to deal with attacks by ruffians or, or ne'er do wells, and the essential fact is that if you are focusing your training towards self-protection, most people, certainly most people outside of a movie, if they attack you and that violence is not solicited, you know, it's a non-consensual violence, they're going to come at you with a fairly natural aggressive behaviour. And depending on their emotional state, how much training they've had may have nothing to do with the type they, of attack they throw. Consider the difference between how two boxers fight in a ring, and what happens if nerves get too frayed and a uh, boxer's weigh-in. Yeah. You don't suddenly see a sharp jab, yeah. great big flailing haymaker. You see attempts to grab and barge and tackle and headlock people. That is why the drills that I teach are orientated to habitual acts of violence.
0: Habitual acts of violence, that's one of the first times which I came across your work, John, was I, I was trying to research exactly what you were just speaking about. And I understood that the attacks I was used to seeing in books, seeing in, in videos back in the day, were these defenses against karate attacks. And again, coming from a self protection you know, viewpoint, I was thinking, well, how does this help me defend against the fights I see on the street, the fights I've seen at school when I was at school, the fights I've seen outside of, of bars and nightclubs? There was a disconnect there. So I was researching this. I came across your work. I came across work you'd published in relation to um, habitual acts of violence. And I came across a few other models as well. So if you just want to talk about habitual acts of violence theory or model and how that maybe differs to some of the other models out there and why you use this one.
1: To begin with, HAOV is not my term.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast and are looking forward to part two of my conversation with John and my future podcasts, then please leave us a review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more visibility you will get on iTunes and then more people will be able to hear it. So I really do appreciate every review you guys provide me. Until next time, take care and be safe.